The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. As much as technology has changed the way we make photographs, it's also changed how we experience them. Today, we rarely linger and take in a photograph. We flip through them in seconds with the swipe of a finger. In the age of the ever-shortening attention span, a photograph only has seconds to hold our attention. But when it comes to the documentary tradition of photography, the intention is to make you stop, put aside all other distractions, and to pay attention. Pay attention to not just individual photographs, but to a series of images that tell a story. For years, Scott Strazanti has done this in his role as a photojournalist, but you can see it especially well in his project, Common Ground. Over a span of several years, he photographs how a piece of land transitions from one family of farmers to home for a growing suburban family who purchased a home on that redeveloped land. It's a story that reveals not only the changes in the family farm and modern land use, but the similarities that can be found in situations where you would never expect to find them. Well, Scott, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm really, it's a real pleasure to, to, to have you. Uh, great to be here. I've really been enjoying uh, the, the body of work that you've created as a photojournalist and as a street photographer. Um, but one of the things that struck me as funny was uh, you were talking about when you started picking up a camera when you were shooting sports when you were a kid. And you talked about shooting the sports with, a, I guess, a 35 millimeter lens. Right. And, you know, you're focused on the action, but when... It shows up in the frame. It's very, very small. <laughs> yes. I, I, st- I still have a little photo album of little prints where I would cut out the photos, and they're like a half inch by half inch, the action. So, But, you know, it was good. You could shoot slow shutter speed when, you're, when it's you know that far away with a wide angle. So it worked out well. But, yeah, I have to pull those out someday and put those on Facebook just to give people a laugh. I remember the first roll of film that I, I put through a camera, and I was on a Sunset Boulevard near Western Avenue, and I saw the Hollywood sign in the distance, and I raised the camera, which probably had like a 50-millimeter lens on there. I took the picture, and we went to the lab, processed the film, and I made a print. And I was like, well, why is the sign so small? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I wanted to take a picture. Exactly. It took me a while to get, to get, get the concept. Yes, exactly. I think a lot of people, they, they look in the frame and they just see what they want to see and they forget everything else is actually going to be in the photo. Yeah. So when photography start becoming a, a serious thing for you, when did you start thinking, maybe I want to do more than just make make snaps? Yeah, well, it was. Uh, I went to college to be a tire dealer. My dad owned a tire dealership in Chicago. So I went to a liberal arts, liberal arts college in Wisconsin called Ripon College. Um, I was a business major and I had screwed around a little bit with photography. Mostly, I just enjoyed photography. I was a big fan of Sports Illustrated, and I had all those 
covers on my wall. And I was mostly a sports fan. It really wasn't the photography, but I enjoyed sports photography. Um, so I would occasionally bring cameras to sporting events that my dad would bring me to. And then when I got to college, um, I started working for the school newspaper, but I quit after two weeks because it just I didn't want to shoot anything but sports and there weren't enough assignments. So after that, it was just all like frat parties. I would bring it to try to impress the women and take photos of uh, people dancing. And, and so at that point, I had no idea photography could possibly be a career for me. Um, but July of uh, my junior year, not July, I'm sorry, the fall of my junior year, I walked into a gallery show at, at the college, and there was a photographer named Paul Giroux, who was at the Chicago Tribune at the time. And he had his work um, exhibited from um, actually some from the community I grew up in in Chicago and some other kind of Tribune things. I remember, I remember specifically a photo story on a, a hunched over monk that he had done. And it seriously, I was just struck. And I was like, this is what I want to do for a career. And I asked Paul, you know, kind of what his path was and, and he gave me some small details, but not too much and kind of said, Oh, you're gonna have to find your own way. And, and so I stayed at Ripon. I became an art major. And then when I got out of college, I kind of just lucked into a job at a small, tiny newspaper near where I grew up and, and just learned by making mistakes. So it was pretty uh, low stress, not high expectations for the photographers then. And, you know, I shot a lot of sports. That's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, my dream was Sports Illustrated. It never kind of happened that way. But, but you know, I was just shooting high school sports for a year. The paper got bought out by a bigger paper. Uh, the Daily South Town, which was a suburban paper, stayed there for 11 years, and then uh, moved to Joliet after three years, won some awards, and then moved to the Chicago Tribune, and then to the Chronicle. So it's you know it was kind of that that day of age where you could kind of step ladder your way up, and you know I don't think that really exists much anymore. Yeah. Now that the top photographers come out of college and they probably start at bigger papers, you know, you know some are at smaller papers, but it's it's definitely a different world. Yeah, Paul's a friend and a uh, long-time right. friend and, and, and has been a guest on the show. So people want to hear um, my conversation with Paul, you should look it up uh, in the app. But Yeah, great guy. You, you were telling me about your father's business. Was there a pushback that you weren't, that once you decided that you wanted to get into photojournalism, was, a, was there some pushback that you weren't going to get into the family business? Oh, my grandfather was pissed. He was so mad because he thought I wanted to work at Sears doing portraits or something. He didn't really quite understand oh, the concept. Okay. He, came, he came over from Sicily when he was a little kid. and I don't think he really understood what I wanted to do. But my dad, who I kind of felt was in the position I was where he kind of got forced into the business, he totally embraced it. He said, you know, do what makes you happy. You know, I'll talk to my dad. You know, we'll make it okay. And so my dad was a great support. My whole family's been a great support for me. Uh, the entire family worked at the business. And so I was kind of the one that, you know, kind of lead. Um, and, 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 and like in an ironic twist, I was named uh, National Newspaper Photographer of the Year for my work in 2000. And one of my photos in my portfolio was a photo I took on the final day of my dad's tire business that closed down basically because... I didn't take it over. So it was this kind of oh, weird, wow. this weird intersection of, of my life, my dad's life, my career path. And it was just kind of really bizarre and weird how it worked out that way. How long did it take your grandfather to understand what you were doing? I think he died before he understood. It was oh, kind of sad. So, yeah, he, yeah, he never, he never quite got it. Yeah. So for you, what, what was the allure of doing a career as a as a photojournalist i mean you know having a career as a photographer is about making photographs but sometimes i think what brings people to the job 
of photojournalists can be very different. And I'm wondering for you, what was it that excited you and, and sort of intoxicated you about the process of, you know, using the camera to enter other people's lives? Yeah, it's definitely evolved over the years. But, you know, the initial thing was sports. It was all sports, sports, sports. I just wanted to go shoot sports. And, um, you know, I was able to shoot Michael Jordan's NBA Finals. I was able to shoot, you know, other big Chicago sport events. And so that was my initial initial draw. And, of course, I had to do news and features and business portraits and, and a lot of really bad assignments when I started out. And now, you know, what, 30 years into the business, I still love doing sports. I still, you know, shot the Super Bowl last year here in Santa Clara. And, you know, I've shot the, the Warriors, which I love. But now I just love intimate, long-term storytelling. And so that's what turns me on. I love being able to, you know, become invisible in someone's life and, and document, you know, things that they're going through. And, you know, since everything in a newspaper has to have some sort of news hook, you know, it, it always usually ends up being a depressing news hook. And, so right now I'm kind of working on this story, which I've been working on for a while, a woman whose daughter was murdered near here a little over a year ago. And so just, you know, just very quiet moments, just following her through life, her and her children kind of adjusting to the loss. And and I've never been one who wanted to go like shoot a war or really chase like big, you know, dramatic events. I just like everyday life. And, you know, I'd rather photograph someone in their kitchen you know, than say a soldier on a battlefield. It's just, mm -hmm. I just love those little universal moments that you find in everyday life. And, and I think, you know, that's something that's kind of drawn me to, you know, my hobby, which is street photography, where I just love observing people and, and just kind of finding these little things that we all can relate to, but are at the same time individual to the, the people that we photograph. When people think of photojournalism, they sometimes, well, oftentimes will think about the big dramatic moments, whether it's sports, whether it's crime, but a lot of photography is fairly mundane. Yes. So when you were first sort of starting your career in, in, in Chicago, can you sort of describe what it was like at the time, you know, the variety of different assignments that you you did have and how would it balance out with, you know, the more sort of dramatic events that you might cover? I would think almost every individual assignment is kind of like my entire like year in photography where say you went to an event, 99% of it is boring and 99% of it is nothing happening, but it's that 1% that we document. And, and it, it's almost hyper reality where we, we just photograph the highs and lows in an event. And it really doesn't, you know, kind of give you a real perspective of what was actually happening because if it was all photography that you put in the newspaper would be boring if you really documented what happened. So we just, most of the time you just sit around and wait for something great to happen. And, and within like a year at a newspaper, I just sit around and wait for a great assignment to happen. Like most days now, you know, I'll, I'll do maybe a restaurant review photo or a portrait of someone or, you know, a press conference or tonight I have a concert I'm shooting in Oakland. Um, but then last week I photographed flooding in San Jose. And you know, I was there as the flood waters were rising and people were kind of evacuating from their homes. And that was like a really dramatic moment and a dramatic time. But that is really rare. You know, it's I would say maybe 10 assignments a year I get where there's actually some real drama. Um, you know, Oakland is kind of the place where everything happens. It seems in the Bay area, all the protests are there. Um, you know, it's just kind of, I love, I'm from the South side of Chicago. So I'm, I'm always kind of drawn to the underdog. I'm always drawn to when I'm in a metropolis, I always kind of like the underappreciated areas. Like San Francisco is great, but San Francisco, you know, it's, 
it's, you know, it's pretty, it's beautiful. I just like kind of the dirty edges. You know, I grew up on the corner of Chicago by the steel mills and, you know, I kind of really like, you know, kind of that, that gritty underbelly of society, but, but not in a negative way, but just Mm -hmm. kind of uplifting it and showing that, um, you know, there's interesting stories everywhere. And, and so I think the, the, the one thing is that like people will always say to me, oh man, you must be busy all the time. I'm not really. Most of the time I'm just kind of sitting around waiting and doing nothing. And, you know, you can kind of make it look like it's a thrill a minute job, but really it's, it is kind of boring, you know, it's mostly just sitting around and waiting. You know, one of the interesting things in several of your projects is how they sort of evolved is that you may have been given uh, an assignment to cover a particular event and then you sort of discovered that there might be a, a bigger story there. Can you walk us through that, what that process is like in terms of, you know, discovering something that may have some potential beyond, you know, the immediate story that you had been sent to be, to sort of document, or how it would lead up to you talking to your editor about doing something more or something that everyone hadn't really anticipated at the beginning? Right. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, the two most important things for storytelling are time and access. You know, if you get the access and then you're able to spend a lot of time with a subject, the photos are going to be great. It doesn't even matter really how, how skilled you are as a photographer. If you're just there for long enough, you're going to make impactful photos. Uh, so I think my kind of thing over the years has been I'll get an assignment, a daily assignment, and I'll kind of recognize that there's long-term potential in it. And so I will usually kind of mention to my photo editor, you know, here's something that I really want to work on over time. So I'm going to kind of sneak over to this assignment and, and photograph it here and there. And when I'm like 30 or 40% done, you know, I'll, I'll kind of show you the work and then we can pitch it to the newsroom. And, and, and it's really difficult sometimes for word editors to understand the idea of a story if you don't show it to them. Because they kind of are drawn to stories where the arc is already finished because they know what's going to happen at the end. And they don't really want um, someone to come in and say, well, I have no idea where this story is going, but I want to spend a year on it. So they'd be like, no. But if you can kind of show them and, and have a really great idea of, okay, this is what I photographed so far and, and this is where it's going, you know, that's usually a no-brainer for most editors to say, yeah, that's that's great. And, you know, early in my career, I was jam-packed. Like, I had five, six assignments a day. But now at bigger newspapers, I have good chunks of time where I can work on a story, you know, while, you know, I'm kind of waiting for other assignments. And, and, and that's why I kind of like doing stories that are always there, you know, where I don't have to, you know, only go on a Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And I think the greatest example of kind of my process is this long-term story I did called Common Ground, where in 1994, I met two cattle farmers in the suburbs of Chicago, and they were senior citizens. They had no children. It was just a daily assignment for a story that was going to run in four days. I spent an afternoon on the farm, and that was it. And there was something about it that intrigued me. So I just went back and visited again and again and again and again. And I ended up photographing the the Cagwins, the farm family, for eight years. And then after they sold their farm to a subdivision developer, four years later, I started documenting a family who lived in that subdivision. And I've been photographing them now since 2007. And so a couple years ago, my book, Common Ground, came out on that. And it definitely was something where 
I never planned it going almost any farther than a week in advance. You know, I just kind of rolled down the hill and kept picking up speed and, and it just kind of organically evolved. And, you know, I'm not someone who researches. I'm not someone who sits around and thinks, what do I work on next? Ideas come to me and I think, you know, I'm, I'm good at kind of figuring out what's a good story and what's not. And then I want to kind of put my own little twist on it and kind of turn it around and maybe show it from a different angle than most people do. Uh, so I think that's a great process for me, but sometimes it'll lead to these long gaps of time where I don't have any stories to work on because I have to wait for them to find me. So, yeah. you know, it definitely, you know, is, is not the most you know, probably consistent formula, but it's always kind of worked for me. That story is really uh, fascinating. I'm sure that it sort of changed, especially considering how much time you spent with them, that there were different facets of their lives together and relationship with the land that sort of changed. How do you sort of figure out where you're going with the work? Because you simply don't want to just make photographs without having some sort of Maybe not necessarily an end game, but having a sort of a general sense of where you're going. When you're spending that much time with people and making photographs, how does the your vision for, for the work evolve? Yeah, well, it's definitely um, something where for a long time, I didn't want to share my work with anyone. I didn't want to show it to anyone because I was you know, either self-conscious or I didn't feel it was a complete thought. So once I finally kind of got comfortable with sharing my work, that's when I really kind of was able to figure out what I was going to say, because then I had to like articulate to the editor what my idea was, because I do tend to just go out and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And then when I'm editing, I kind of figure out what my story is. It, it is better. And especially when you're doing a story that's 20 years long, you, you kind of at some point have to come up with some sort of plan. So you don't you know, just kind of reshoot the same thing over and over. Uh, so I, I think having a, a, a second set of eyes is always great. Having an editor or another photographer who can look at your work will honestly tell you if you're heading in the right direction. I think that, so when I first started on the project, I was at the Daily South Town, and then I moved over to the Herald News in Joliet, and that was in 98. And when I got there, there were all these amazing photographers working there. You know, John Lowenstein, who's at NOR now, and Todd Heiser from the New York Times, Mike Davis, who was an editor at National Geographic, who now teaches at Syracuse, he was there. So it was just all this great amount of talent and all these people who were really excited about photojournalism. And, and we would gather on Friday nights and we would bring work in and show each other and, and just give feedback. And it was really wonderful. You know, I, I've kind of learned over the year that the, the photojournalism community is so giving of their time and so giving of their advice. It's not, there's not much jealousy. People will share their ideas. They'll share, you know, kind of how they, you, they think you could make it better. And, and I think that's pretty rare in a lot of professions. So, you know, just sharing the work with people really helps. Um, but then at the same time, you still have to have your own vision. You have to have it be true to what you want to say. And, and, and it has to be in your voice. So, you know, I think sometimes you kind of take, you know, people's advice, but you also have to kind of rely on your own feeling of, of what works the best. Yeah. I mean, the, the story of that, of that family was that they, they owned this, this, the land. They had uh, worked on it for years. And then the surrounding area started being subject to develop, development. And I guess they were one of the last people to finally sell their property. Right. But uh, I'm sure that, that a big part of what you were exploring was not just the, the change in, in, in the face of the landscape, 
but also how these people who are getting older were having to sort of recreate and redefine their lives. And when people talk about objectivity with respect to journalism, it's usually with just going out and telling a story, and it's usually very limited contact. But when you are involved in people's lives to that extent, how much of a challenge is it for you not to get really personally invested in what's happening? Or is that impossible to do? Yeah, it is impossible. I've become a member of the family. And it's, I think that's 90% great. You know, there are parts of it that that maybe, I'm not, it, it, I don't think it's unethical, but I think you definitely, when you love someone, you know, who you've been photographing, you, you don't want, sometimes you might kind of self-censor or something, or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of not, you know, show everything that you could you could show but but yeah i get really close to my photo subjects and i i I usually keep in touch with them over time you know it's impossible to do with all of them but you know the the cagwins it started out as just the day in the life of some cattle farmers and then you know it became a story on aging and then became story on suburban sprawl and then it became a story on you know just on you know just like what's it like to leave the home that you've spent 80 years in you know and so you know, definitely the story kind of kept adding elements over the years. And, and then when I switched to the subdivision, then it became a whole different set um, of images. And, and, and they're, they're kind of, I, I present them together in diptychs. So it's really interesting now that like a, a good 15 years has passed since the farm. And the farm photos are still timeless. You know, you still really have no idea when they were taken. But my suburban photos, especially the ones in 2007, 2008, 2009, those are already dated. You know, there's big televisions, big box TVs, um, you know, the cars and stuff. So it's really going to be interesting to see how that ages over time. And, you know, because I think the farm photos will always be exactly in the same kind of age that people think. But, you know, the subdivision changes and life nowadays seems to change so much more rapidly than than it did before. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know, like, if it's better to be a fly on the wall or, or you know, but my style is to just share my life with people so they share their lives uh, with me. And most of the time when I'm photographing a long-term story, I'm having conversations while I'm photographing. It's like just kind of I'm not silent. It's just kind of a talk. And And one of the challenges with that is, at newspapers nowadays, they want you to do video. And when you're used to like talking to someone, it's kind of hard for them to stop talking to you. And you almost have to say like, okay, I'm doing video now, ignore me, you know? And so, (laughs) so that's like a kind of a weird thing. And I'm not, you know, I think video is really powerful and audio especially, but it's not, it's not my passion. So even though I have to do it occasionally, it's not something I I still just love still photography. And I'm glad we don't have to diagram that answer because it had been all over the board. (laughs) Well, what's interesting about that story is that after their home was torn down and and then they had left, you started photographing the families who who now were living in those new homes and sort of moving beyond what I think a lot of people typically see as the end of the story. Right, right. So how did you covering that aspect of the story change this perspective that you had about what that family had to originally gone through how did it sort of reshape it for you yeah it was interesting like my my original idea was well i'll just follow the cagwins to their new home i'll just kind of continue the story in their new life you know retirement and they ended up moving an hour and a half away it was really inconvenient and so i kind of figured then okay well the story's done eight years with the cagwins on the farm you know there's no need to go any further but then it just 
you know, I lived near the subdivision that was being built and I would drive by occasionally. And so I kind of, it kind of nagged me that, you know, there was something more there. And, and it took, it took me five years to find a family in the subdivision. And it kind of happened in a weird way. I was giving a photo presentation at a, a community college and I showed my work on the farm. And at the end of the presentation, a woman raised her hand and said, um, I live in that subdivision. I'm like, what? She's like, I live in that subdivision. And that happened to be Amanda, the wife who's the centerpiece of my subdivision part of the story. And, and so that's how I met them. It just kind of, they mm. found me, you know, and that's like how my career has been. It's like things find me. And, and so it, it's really, you know, was, was definitely a gift from the photo gods. And, and so then, you know, the first day I visited the subdivision, you know, like they had triplets, they had a dog that looked like a cow, you know, it just kind of all kind of came together. And, and definitely when I started pairing the photos together, it totally changed the idea of what the story was. And, you know, it came, became more about people in general, it came more about what makes us common with people instead of different from them. And, and so I think, I think one of the advantages I had of staying in Chicago for 50 years of my life before I moved was that I could kind of work on these stories, put them on the back burner for years and then bring them back out. And, and so it definitely never was the plan and I'll never have another story like it, but, but just kind of seemed natural, seemed to be a way to do it. You know, I don't really think about these things when I'm working, but I think the story is, and, and, and most of the work we do is history. It's historical. And I think newspapers do a horrible job of photographing for a historical context because we're always kind of getting in close. You know, we don't, sometimes we don't have a lot of context. You know, like I said before, there's hyper-reality. We're only photographing the highs and the lows. So the kind of the middle part of life is totally undocumented. So that's why I love, you know, that story where I would just go to their house on whatever day and just photograph whatever happened. And, and I think it's a really good slice and a kind of peek at what middle America looks like in the early 2000s. And, and so I think in the long term, the historical aspect of it is, is really what's going to be important. I, I tell young photographers, you know, why don't you do this? Go, you know, go to your hometown, walk down Main Street or go wherever you are and just basically take a mugshot of every building in town or just take these very kind of wide, simple photos and make prints of them and put them away. And, you know, and if you brought them back out in 20 or 30 years, you could produce a book right there and people mm -hmm. would be like, oh, that's amazing. You know, look at, you know, what Phoenix looked like 30 years ago. And, and, and it's something that I don't even have the foresight to do and I, I don't do it, but, but it would be something, you know, like, I don't know if, you know, Vivian Meyer, like the work that Vivian Meyer produced in Chicago that, that was discovered, you know, in the last 10 years. Part of the, you know, the, the lure of that work is it was a time from the past and, and, and it's, you know, I think it's high quality work, but there's also this historical aspect to it that is so valuable. And you get a peek at, at what life was like in, you know, 1950 or 1960. Join me on April 8th at the Los Angeles Center of Photography, where I'll be teaching a full day workshop on street photography. After a short presentation, we'll hit the streets and I'll walk you through my own process for seeing and photographing. Whether you're new to street photography or have some experience under your belt, you'll find plenty to learn and enjoy as we explore the streets of Los Angeles together. To find out more about these and other courses offered at the Los Angeles Center of Photography, visit lacphoto.org.
Yeah. One of the surprises that uh, you discovered was the similarities in terms of the moments that you captured in these two families, literally decades apart, mm-hmm. and how through the diptychs you were able to reveal sort of the connective tissue that connected these families, even though they weren't living together in the same time, and they were completely different generations living very different lifestyles. Tell us about sort of the discovery of that and how that how that influenced how you saw the, the work. Yeah, when I, when I met Amanda at that photo class and I went to visit them the first time, they were having an Easter egg hunt um, for the entire cul-de-sac they lived on. And I introduced myself to the entire cul-de-sac because they were all there. And I said, hi, I'm from the Chicago Tribune. I did a story on uh, the farmers that lived on this land. And I want to photograph the subdivision now. And I don't have no idea what I'm going to do. I pretty much said, I said, I don't know if this will ever be published. Um, I just want to kind of hang out. Everyone was cool with it. So I had kind of carte blanche as a you know, middle-aged man to just kind of kind of come into this cul-de-sac and photograph whatever I saw, but even without the parents around. Because I think there was like 15 children living in this like eight-house cul-de-sac. Um, and so my second visit there, um, one of the boys, Ben, who was the oldest of Amanda and Ed's children, was wrestling with his cousin out in the front yard with a, a jump rope. And, and uh, Ben had tied up CJ with the jump rope and they were screwing around. And so when I got home that night, um, I edited my take from the day, and that photo like reminded me of a photo I'd taken on the farm. And so I went back to my my um, images from the farm, and I found this photo of Harlow, the farmer, wrestling with a, a day-old calf that had gotten loose, and he had the, the rope, and the rope was kind of all entangled on the calf. And and so I was like, wow, you know. And so I put those two photos together, and once I kind of decided to kind of compare and contrast life, it was really easy. I, I immediately probably made three or four more diptychs. And then um, I didn't I didn't specifically go and when I went back to the subdivision and look for pairings, but things would present themselves that that reminded me of a photo or I would just edit my take and then just go through, you know, 500 of my farm photos looking for matches. And one of my favorite diptychs is uh, this pairing I have of um, two cows with their head in a bucket. And then there's two kids with Easter egg like basket buckets on their head. And, and, and I make that, I made that pairing a year after I made the subdivision photo. So some of them took forever to put together. Some of them I immediately put together. And so I think now I'm up to like maybe 120 pairings that I really like. And, um, the book that I put out two years ago probably only had like 20 or 25 in there. Um, but it definitely, you know, a lot of them are just, okay, here's, you know, they're, they're kind of compositionally, Paired, but there's a handful that I think work on a little deeper level, and, and I think those are the ones that are a little more successful. That kind of make issues about like maybe food choices or you know how people feel about religion or whatever. So there, there's you know I think there's still a lot of work I could do on that project. And, and usually when I go back to Chicago, one of my first stops is at the subdivision, um, and things have changed there. Uh, the, the triplets are now um, 13 years old. Um, Ed and Amanda are divorced. Ed has moved out. Mm-hmm. Um, so Amanda is just living in the house with the kids. Ben, ben has gone to college and then I think dropped out of college. So it's just kind of, it, it's just gotten off in so many different tangents that it's almost kind of hard to kind of rein it back in, yeah. you know, because it just kind of shows you how life back when Gene and Carla were, were farming seems so much simpler than life nowadays. It's just so much messier nowadays. And but at the core of it, you know, it is kind of the same. Everyone has the same values still and and so it's uh 
I, th- I think, you know, the story will, will evolve and it'll age and it'll become something different in 20 years than it is right now. And, and I think that's kind of fun. You know, it's definitely something that, that I'll probably revisit again and maybe do another book sometime in the future. I'm not sure. One of the realities of um, being a photojournalist is uh, the competition for space. You know, you, you may have what you think is a wonderful set of images, but uh, they can only run one or they can only run one really small. Right. But, you know, you started creating a blog from the hip while you were still in Chicago. Uh, talk about the role of the blog in terms of you being able to share the images you created, but why it was sort of an important outlet for you. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I always, throughout my photo career, my newspaper career, had great frustration about what photos ran in the newspaper, especially before the internet. You know, I remember I would take photos I really loved and if they didn't show up in the next day's paper, no one would ever see them. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I would, maybe one of them would win in a, an award of excellence in a contest. And, you know, maybe then a handful of people would see it. But I remember so many days of picking up the newspaper and just like, oh, you know, why did they pick that photo or, or they cropped it bad? You know, it's like, oh, so, you know, so that frustration when the Internet started coming out led me to do a blog. And so I remember that frustration of, you know, news, newspapers running my photos poorly or not running them at all. And so I decided I started doing a, a blog called Shooting from the Hip and I just started on WordPress. It was my own private blog. And I would just kind of put photos that I liked that didn't run in the newspaper. And and then I started getting a little flack from the newspaper where they were, the Chicago Tribune was like, well, we own those photos. You shouldn't be putting them on your personal blog. And so then they allowed me to house or, you know, the blog on the Tribune site itself. And, and so that then I could pretty much photograph anything I wanted. And I could actually go out and do stories specifically just for my blog. And then... You know, that was kind of in the infancy of Facebook. And because I remember, you know, back in remember the beginning of Facebook where you would just put Scott is sleeping. You know, that was all, all Facebook was. And and once images became a huge part of Facebook, you know, then I was started, you know, putting photos on Facebook and then Instagram and Twitter. And so after I did the blog for six or seven years, I almost kind of felt like the blog was becoming just a regurgitation of my social media stuff. And so I, I did bring the blog with me to San Francisco, but after about a year, I quit. So now, you know, I, I pretty much, you know, publish my, my own personal work, either on Facebook or my Instagram page or the San Francisco Chronicles Instagram page. So there's so many outlets. And I really love just how my career has spanned that time of, you know, you would only see my photos if they ran in the paper. Or I brought them to your house to now where I could, you know, do a Instagram photo and within 30 seconds have someone in Japan commenting on it, which just is crazy. It's like, you know, you could distribute your own photography worldwide. You know, obviously there's much more noise out there and it's not really a curated um, photography. So there's a lot of really bad photography out there, including some of my own. I think I've kind of, over the last couple of years, been a better curator of my work, where when I first started doing um, Instagram stuff, I would post 10 to 12 photos a day. And I've also put them on Facebook. And and now Facebook memories reminds me of some of the horrible photos that I put <laughs> out there. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I can't believe I made people look at all these. And But I just was so excited about you know, having that outlet that I just couldn't contain myself. So it, obviously, it's a really tough time to make money in, in photography. But I think for sharing photography, it's the golden age. It's like, you know, I can't imagine it being any better than it is now. And I think it's, it's it was probably interesting considering when you started was that the kind of relationship that you could have with the people who saw your pictures 
really changed dramatically as a result of, of the blog and then mm-hmm. Instagram. You know, I think for a large part of the uh, large part of the uh, the reality of the work is that you never really get a sense about how people are reacting to your photographs. Right. But when you're using a blog and you're using Instagram to share your work, you're connecting you're, and you're building relationships with people, like you said, from all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just I love Instagram and I think it's really a great platform for you know, getting to see other people's work and getting to expose your work to other people. And, you know, like I, I, I think I follow over 6,000 people on Instagram. Um, I probably don't get to see all their photography, but mm-hmm. I, I pretty much taught myself photography by looking at other people's photography. And I still have that same passion. I still have that same appetite for, for photography. And, and nowadays, you know, I could just sit on my laptop for every waking hour and find new interesting photography from photographers I've never heard of. And that's just, it's just amazing. There's so many great photographers out there and especially outside the United States with just unique views of the world. And, um, you know, it's just, it's it's amazing. It's just, you know, it's a little bit scary at times and it's a little bit like, you know, Oh my God, you know, how did what I have to say important with all this other, other work. But, but I guess the magic of photography is we all have a different, a different eye, a different vision, and, and we could all be standing next to each other and make different photography. So what do you get out of iPhonography and street photography that's different from what you get as a, as a photojournalist? Well, I've, I think I've always, as a newspaper photographer, shot for other people where I'm shooting for what I think other people want to see, like mm-hmm. either, whether it's my editor or the viewers. And I think it's kind of a sanitized version of my vision where I'm trying to make it accept, um, accessible to people with all photo IQs where, you know, just like a grandma who, who doesn't even have a camera to, you know, a fine art photographer, to a photojournalist, to just, you know, a guy who works at the Starbucks. You know, I want everyone to my work to be accessible to them in the newspaper for my Instagram work, especially my street photography. That's how I see the world. That's, that's purely me. And I, yeah, I I share it because I want people to see it and I want input, but I'm shooting it for myself. You know, for me, I kind of, it's a stream of consciousness almost. It's like kind of doodling on a napkin while I'm at a bar, you know, where it is kind of, it's very ephemeral. It's not really meant to be an archived thing. Um, Even though I'm going to have a book on, called shooting from the hip, which I'm going to actually start a pre-sale tomorrow. Um, and that's all on my hipstamatic iPhone photography. And so it's definitely something that keeps me motivated. You know, I feel like over my career, I've always had to kind of have different things to kind of keep me excited about photography because the newspaper world, I love it. And, and I don't want to ever not be a newspaper photographer, but you know, it gets to be redundant. It gets to be the same thing over and over again. So I, I've always felt that like I kind of have these phases where, you know, either I'm working on common ground for you know 20 years or I'm doing now for the past seven years, I've done street photography either with a big newspaper camera or, you know, with the iPhone. And, and in 10 years, I'll be doing something totally different. And, you know, so I've always just tried to keep evolving, stay and keep my, my, my vision fresh. And it's just so easy, especially with all the downtime I have in San Francisco. And it's such an amazingly visual city that uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine just not documenting it because it's not before 2010. My whole thing with street photography was, well, what's the point? You know, there's no news value to it. Like, why is someone smoking on the corner in this beautiful shaft of light? What, like, why would the, the newspaper wouldn't run that photo? And so I never kind of found value in it. 
And it's kind of weird, too, because like my first photo influence was Gary Winogrand. I saw a documentary on him when I was 13, and I didn't even realize really what he was doing, and I wasn't a photographer. But there was something about his work that I found mesmerizing. And, and so now you know, that I started you know, doing more street photography, it's, I've come to love it, and I've come to love the power of it. And, and so it's, it definitely keeps me fresh, and it keeps me motivated. And you know, I've probably had four or five assignments over the years at newspapers you know, recently where you know, the editors will say, hey, can you shoot this in your street photography style or whatever? You know, so they ask yeah. me to like, do it in that style. But, but it definitely, when, you know, coming back to your question, the work I do that I share on Instagram, which is like 99.9% iPhone work, is how I see the world. Um, where my newspaper work is how I think people want me to see the world. You know, so it's more, I think it's not quite as creative, but it also, you know, you know it's, just, it's, it's, it's not that different, but it is a little more sanitized, I think. Aesthetically, in terms of what you do with the frame, how do you think you've become a better photojournalist as a result of shooting in a style that isn't maybe it can be anything you know when you're using the phone and you're doing street photography you can be uh, a lot looser you can take a lot more risks Mm -hmm. um you can do stuff that you might not normally think you would do for a straight photojournalism picture so how has all those things that you've done helped make you a better photographer when it comes time to do something on assignment i've been in the business long enough where i can make a good enough photo very quickly and so that's always what I do first. You know, I make, you know, I kind of cover my ass and then, then I start pushing the envelope, but then I can kind of take chances. And especially now with the, with the viewer right on the back of the, you know, the back of the camera where you can see the photo you just took, you know, it makes it a lot easier than in the film days where you had no idea what you had, where you kind of felt like you had to photograph 10 great moments in hopes that you have two of them, mm-hmm. you know? And so now with being able to see like, okay, this is in focus and, and I definitely know that this is something that that kind of covers my, the newspaper's expectations. You know, now I can kind of just kind of be creative. And 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 the thing is that over the years, the work that I really kind of push it and kind of be more creative, which I think that the editors aren't going to like, they always end up liking more. You know, and I think I should be smart enough by now to say, well, I can take <laughs> more chances, but I still don't at times. You know, I still, you know, but also too, I think I kind of you know I'm cynical and jaded at times. And I go into an assignment defeated already. Like, I'm like, oh, this is a non-visual assignment. You know, it's something that the reporters set up. It's not even real to start out with. It's just someone meeting me to photograph them in front of their car. And so I don't even like think outside the box. I don't realize, hey, you know what? I can actually talk to this person and say, hey, when are you actually going to be doing something? You know, instead of just going and shooting 10 minutes. So I think there are times too where, I'm really motivated and I'm just kind of trying to make the best of it. And then other times I'm kind of just sleepwalking through it. And, and, and I guess that's one of the advantage of being a salaried newspaper photographer. Mm-hmm. Like you can kind of go brain dead for a while. It's not the best thing. And my bosses probably don't want to hear that, but it's, you know, there are times when you're just not motivated when you just kind of do what's good enough. But, you know, it's, I think making more creative photos kind of personally kind of gives me kind of the courage to do it. And, and share it with editors. And, um, but, you know, I'm always editing my own work anyway, so I can kind of show them what I want to show them. You know, the most horrific days for me was when I first started shooting slide film at newspapers, and you would just send the unprocessed roll to, like, someone else to mm-hmm. edit it. And I hated that. It was just mortifying to have someone see my raw take and, you know, and, 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 and then also pick out, you know, you can't, I don't think that someone who, someone can really edit your work well 
if they weren't experiencing what you were shooting, you know, it's just, you know, obviously they have their own biases and they're, they're looking for something that, that probably matches the story more. So it's, it's kind of, so I, I really like having control of the edits. I really like kind of giving them my very small take of what I think are the best photos. And then they always pick the worst photo out of those 10, but you know, but you know, that's, that's just part of the job. So. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Hmm, great question. Um, there's a street photographer in England who's, I think, kind of fairly well known now. His name is Matt Stewart. Mm-hmm. And he like has a great sense of humor, you know, just kind of ironic photos um, just photos that'll make you laugh. Um, so I, I love images, you know, um, I like images in my own work and other people's work that make me laugh or make me think or make me smile or kind of show, you know, I think political cartoons do a really great job of, of cutting through an issue because they use humor a lot of times. And I think humor is a great way to communicate. And, and Matt Stewart's work is definitely has, has humor and, and, but is ironic at the same time. Uh, but, you know, I could sit here and give you a hundred photographers' names. That was the one just popped in, but because there's so much, so much great work. Um, but yeah, like you know, I, I definitely am kind of in the street photography, you know, mindset the last couple of years. So definitely, he's one of my favorites. Well, thanks, Scott. I really appreciated talking with you. Oh man, it was it was a pleasure. I really appreciated the time. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Scott for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out his project and order a book of the photography by visiting commongroundthebook.com. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the one you heard today. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the candid frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the candid frame website or in the show notes. Thanks to all who have recently contributed to the show, including the infectious myth and Jeffrey Nissler. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save all of the great interviews we've presented here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarionx. And this is Ibarionx, and this is The Candid Frame.